0: Are you a web developer who uses Flask? It has become the most popular Python web framework. And even if you've used it for years, I bet we cover at least one thing that will surprise you and make your Flask code better. Join me as I speak with Miguel Grinberg about his top 10 list for tips and tricks in the Flask world. They're great. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 264, recorded May 1st, 2020. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python, the language, the libraries, the ecosystem, and the personalities. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at, mkennedy. Keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm, and follow the show on Twitter via at TalkPython. This episode is brought to you by Sentry and Linode. Please check out what they're offering during their segments. It really helps support the show. Miguel, welcome back to Talk by Thunder Me. Thank you, Michael. Glad to be here once again. It's great to catch up with you. It's been a while. We used to catch up a little bit more when you were in Portland, but uh yeah, a little farther away now. So it's nice to see your face and hear how you're doing.
1: I'm I'm doing good. For those that don't know, I'm I'm in Ireland. Probably not forever. I think eventually I will return to Portland. We will go back to have lunch every once in a while. Perfect. Perfect. I'm looking forward to it, whenever that yeah. is. <laughs> yes. But for the time being, yes, I am living in Ireland. The, the plan was to uh, to travel a little bit, which, of course, with the current situation, not so much, or actually not at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's uh, not the best time, but you have been there for a while. And, you know, I really
0: enjoyed my time in Europe. I'm super happy to be in Portland right now, don't get me wrong. But I really enjoyed living in Germany for a year because it was so cool to just go, hey, it's two hours on the TGV to get over to France and to Paris. Or, I could just drive down to Austria or
1: whatever. Yeah. Like it's a different kind of experience over there, isn't it? It's really nice. And I'm really looking forward to civilization resuming at some <laughs> point and and do that for a little bit more time before we return back to, to the States. Cool.
0: Well, I'm, I'm glad it's uh, going well for you, even if you are a little bit restricted in your uh, day trips and whatnot, which I'm all behind, right? Like we
1: need we need to do this to get through this. It's such an insane time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say that I, I feel like I've been preparing for this situation, you know, for the last few years by, you know, working remotely.
0: You know, that's really
1: interesting, right? I
0: totally hear what you're saying and I agree with you because you and I talked before you moved to Ireland and I think you were thinking, all right, well, Where I'm moving to, I might not have a job there. So let me figure out how I can like start laying the foundation so that I could work anywhere in the world. And I just happen to be hanging out, you know, outside of Dublin, (laughs) just, you know, enjoying life and seeing things, but, you know, maybe still working for somewhere in the States or somewhere else in in Europe or even doing
1: your own thing, right? Yes. It's a little bit of everything actually. And uh, the situation is luckily so far has not affected my work life. It affected pretty much everything else in many ways, but work. I'm working for, for Twilio right now, mm-hmm. and that luckily is going well and uh, has, hasn't been affected at all because I was remote before, so everything keeps going the same way for me. A lot of the company was not remote, and it is remote now, so there's been big changes for a big part of the company, but not specifically right. for me and my team, which were you know, we were remote before. It's cool.
0: You know, Twilio is a great company and I'm happy to hear you're working with them. I wonder, do you think that for people like you and me and the thousands of others out there listening who are already on the remote side of things, it's different for me because I don't have a, like a in-office counterpart of my company, right? Everyone I work with that works with me on stuff is all remote. So not so much for me, but I guess for folks like in your shoes where I used to be as well, Do you think this, I guess, forced remote work experiment that we're all on, do you think it's made it a little bit easier for you in the sense that it's like leveled the playing field, right? It used to be like maybe there was a meeting with five people in the room and then there was like you and one other remote person were kind of on the side. People would like pointed stuff you couldn't see or whatever. But now everyone has to kind of be on equal ground. Do you think it makes remote
1: workers a little bit better off in a sense? I think that will be the case for teams that are partially remote, partially in office. That is not my case. Yeah.
0: Even though company, like your team individually, it's 100% remote.
1: It's 100% remote. Okay. Basically what I do at Twilio is I I work on editing uh, articles for the, uh, the blog, the developer blog. My team is, you know, editors. I work on the Python side and we have people for different languages and that's my team. Right. You probably have to coordinate about like, hey, we're going to have an
0: article on this API solving this problem. I'll do one in JavaScript. You'll do one in Python and let's figure out what the app is, right?
1: We have one meeting a week to basically coordinate. And then the rest of the time we work with uh, external contributors, right? Also remotely. So, Mm -hmm. you know, for for our team specifically, nothing has changed, but I, I would imagine... Or actually, I should say the the one thing that changed is that we were' getting asked for advice or all these new people who are forced to work remotely want to have you know tips and basically pick our brains.
0: Tell us how you do it, right? Tell us how you make this work right. how, we have how no could idea. you make
1: this work right <laughs> I think it's so
0: interesting to watch the news where they have you know like multiple people on the show or or things like the daily show or stuff. I'm especially thinking of the news shows with the news anchors where they all have had to start working from home. And you can see like week after week, they slowly are figuring it out, right? Yes. They had like super echoey laptop audio for their microphones. <laughs> and they're slowly starting to sound yeah. like ironically, like you and I do. And I think that we sound better. I mean, obviously we do recording and stuff, but also because we've had to live 100% as, with this as our professional interaction. And so to me, like sounding good and looking good, like we both have HD cameras, we both have good microphones, that is kind of like getting dressed and looking good for business, right? Like when you show up for a meeting and you sound horrible and echoey, people don't want to talk to you, right? That's not a good look. There's a bunch of layers that we're all cultivating here.
1: So what I'm very excited to know is what's going to happen at the end of this. I think a lot more people are realizing that It works. You can work from home, and you get all that time, you know, the commute time back. So I suspect a percentage of you know all the people who are now forced to work remotely will like it, and will will
0: decide (laughs) that that,
1: yeah, I I can really do this.
0: I think we're not going all the way back to the way it was. It's going to be some of these advantages that people were unwilling to try are going to be seen as advantages are going to stick for sure.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Guys, how about we talk about some Flask, huh? Something that uh, you've yeah. been definitely yeah. Stuff passionate about, Flask. about for, for many, many years. So uh, we were talking before, and you were on episode 48 over wow. four years ago. Where we talked about building apps with Flask. And then you were on episode 121, where we were talking about microservices and really
1: with like a bit of a Flask angle
0: there as well. So you've been a fan of Flask for a long time.
1: Yeah, I was a user of Flask first and probably told the story in the first episode. But, you know, quickly, I I wrote my blog with Flask. And then not knowing what to blog about, I decided to blog about (laughs) Flask at a time where, you know, I I wouldn't say that it was an obscure framework, but, you know, certainly didn't have the following that has now. So my articles, for some reason, were the first. That you know, outside of the the framework's own documentation, and it started growing. At the same time, I decided to blog about it. Yeah, you just catch the wave at just the right yeah, time, and exactly. But at the same time, you know, you saw the framework.
0: You're like, no, I'm not going to do it in Django or whatever else. I'm going to do it in Flask, right? So there's some fi- you know, picking the right ideas. Yes, there. and and
1: part of my, I'd like to think that this, this was a little bit of my doing. I showed why, you know, in many cases, Flask was. The better choice by writing tutorials, usually on my blog, and showing actual examples where you could do things that, you know, usually are considered hard and they're not so hard when you look at them through Flask.
0: Yeah. To me, Flask, I'll compare it to Django because that's its biggest alternative, right? There's certainly all these other new things, there's, there's so many new web frameworks coming. I don't know, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this actually, is oh yes. There's there's so many new cool little frameworks. You know, we got fast API, we have API Star, we have SANIC, and just all these they're not all necessarily leveraging the new async IO stuff, but a lot of them seem to be like, Hey, these other frameworks didn't really solve my problem because they didn't support async. So we're gonna create something that maybe leverages type hints plus async that's kinda
1: like Flask, mm-hmm. but what do yeah. you think about some of those? Like, where do you see the action there? First of all, I'm very excited that the model for all these frameworks is Flask, right? They all yes. kind of like Flask, as you said.
0: Yeah, that is what was really surprising to me. So if you compare Flask against Django or against Pyramid or against the other frameworks, and you look at their popularity, like, I think Flask is, we were talking, neck and neck. But I think, actually, if you look at the newer projects that haven't been around for a while flask is pretty clearly ahead Probably. of django in terms of uh, popularity it's yes, like there's a I ton of so. django apps that people are still working on so when you ask do you work on django or flask it's a lot of times i think it means i work on a django app that's been around a while not that there's anything wrong with django but just in terms of that growth but then if you look at flask as the like the idea of it that all these other frameworks seem to think that this flask
1: style yes uh a slight adaptation is what they want, right? Yes. A big reason for that I think is the we are moving a lot of the uh, the logic, the, the business logic in applications to the client side, right, with all these new JavaScript-based frameworks for the browser. Right. Yeah, so for sure. What's left to do in the server is really the database storage related actions and maybe authentication, surely authentication. Yeah. And that's it. So If you look at a framework like Django, you can do that really well, but it has a lot more components that you really have no use for. And, you know, all these new frameworks modeled after it sort of give you just the API portion of your server side part of your project. Right. It's kind of just enough server side. Yes. Right. I would say that it has a little less and then you can pick you know, the right extensions to, to make it exactly what you want. Okay. Yeah. Right. Right. Add on. Yeah. <laughs> That's
0: a good point. I'm still a fan of having a decent amount done on the server side. I I don't know. I just, I like the instant, resp- you know, it's, I don't know. It drives me crazy to see these pages sort of like build up as I interact with them, you know, you'll see like, oh, you're logged out. No, wait, half a second later, I'm logged in. And like, you know, just that kind of stuff. Yes. I'm not a huge fan
1: of. You should find the right mix between, yeah. you know, server and client. I think people are too quick to go to build everything as a single page app, react view, angular, you know, th- those types. And they, they don't think about doing it a right balance. Sometimes you don't expect everything to be done in a single page. It feels weird. The the whole page is changing, but it's really done in React, for example, which is slow and weird. It messes with the back button in the browser. I prefer to basically use the single page app only when you see a clear benefit. You really need like an interactive
0: thing. I'm building like a little dashboard I'm exploring or something like Gmail or something like, it's perfect, right? But it shouldn't be the the one hammer you hit everything with on the web.
1: My blog, the blog that I wrote, six, seven years ago, when I started with Flask, it's still a traditional application, server-centric. And, you know, it's just fine. It has a a little bit of JavaScript sprinkle here and there (laughs) to make it a little bit nicer, but, you know, it's mostly server-side. And I I think for a blog, that works really well.
0: Yeah, I agree. So you're talking about the front-end frameworks. Like, I agree, like, don't overuse them, whatnot. But Sometimes they make a lot of sense. What ones do you like right now?
1: My preference, and this is going to generate generate a, a little bit of uh, disappointment in your audience, I think, is a vanilla JavaScript. That okay. is the framework or the no framework that fits my brain the best. So yeah. I can do whatever you want in vanilla JavaScript. A few years ago, I would say jQuery. Uh, these days, you, you don't really need that. The jQuery was a, a layer that will make... All the browsers sort of uniform. And these days, the browser, the browsers are pretty good at being uniform with each other. So that's my favorite out of the real frameworks. React is the one that I've used the most, but only for simple apps. What I've seen is that all these dependencies that are generated between all the, all the parts of a page it's very easy to get them completely out of control as the project grows. At least I personally find having a handle, like, for example, when writing vanilla JavaScript, having a handle of what part of the page it's related to what other part makes it for a much faster and uh, dynamic application. For small examples, I think React is a good model, and that is what I use. Nice. If I had to throw my vote in for one, I'd put it on Vue. I like VJS Mm -hmm. a
0: lot. Yeah, I like just. Quickly, just bring it in, include a JavaScript file, you know, pull out an ID and say, this little subpart of the page is now an app. Mm -hmm. I really like that. Yeah, V will be my second choice, actually. Yeah. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by Sentry. How would you like to remove a little stress from your life? Do you worry that users may be having difficulties or are encountering errors with your app right now? Would you even know it until they send that support email? How much better would it be to have the error details immediately sent to you, including the call stack and values of local variables, as well as the active user stored in the report? With Sentry, this is not only possible, it's simple and free. In fact, we use Sentry on all the TalkPython web properties. We've actually fixed a bug triggered by our user and had the upgrade ready to roll out as we got the support email. That was a great email to write back. We saw your error and have already rolled out the fix. Imagine their surprise. Surprise and delight your users today. Create your free account at talkpython.fm slash sentry and track up to 5,000 errors a month across multiple projects for free. Flask is on the rise. I think it's on the rise in its own right. And I think it's on the rise in the sense of its API as we talked about. So let's dive into the 10 tips that we're going to talk about.
1: Yes, 10 tips.
0: Yeah, what do you got for number one here?
1: Okay, number one, it's actually very specific to APIs. Okay. You do not need to use the JSONify function anymore. So this is in in recent Flask releases. For many years, if you needed to return a JSON response, you had to to call the the JSONify function, which would take a dictionary or list and convert it into the actual JSON payload that goes out to clients. Right.
0: So if I've got a view method and I want it to return JSON, I can't just say return a dictionary or return a list and have it internally serialized to JSON, right? Right. That'll like not work. Not until now. So I've always done JSONify as well. Now what can I do instead?
1: So basically now you return a dictionary and Flask will itself say, okay, this this goes out as JSON. So it, it will JSONify the response, set the correct content type, and all of that. So when I
0: think about this, what else has to be done to make this work? Do I need to add anything like to the route decorator to say the response is JSON? No. Or is it enough if the client no. connecting says, accept type is application slash JSON? Or what do I need to do?
1: You don't need to do anything. So this is always flask looked at the type of your response that you're returning your view function there were always different behaviors depending on the type so if if it Mm. was a string it would send it as as text if if it was a response object it would send it as basically whatever you said in that response object and so on and now there's one more type if you return a dictionary then Flask says, okay, this is JSON. It basically sets everything up for the response to be all done for you. So it's really great. Yeah. I'm not importing json anymore. There, there's no need at all to import that function and then have it in every single last line of all your view functions.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's really clean. I definitely like that. That's something I've really liked about the Pyramid Web Framework is you've been able to do that the whole time. You just mm-hmm. return some data type and it'll uh, serialize it. Yeah. So really glad to see this is nice and clean. And yeah, I think when I first started doing Flask, I was like, oh, I'm going to try to return a dictionary. Oh, it doesn't like that. Now I have to go hunt down. So ran across JSONify and I didn't realize that that had been uh, sort of more uh, made
1: more general. So you don't have to, that's great. Yeah. It's really nice. For for many years, I I used the decorator specifically for that. It was an at JSON that I even (laughs) taught in many classes how to create a decorator that, that will take that response, a dictionary.
0: Absolutely. And I've I've created a, a decorator exactly like that that takes in the decorator, you specify the Jinja template and you return a dictionary and then it'll like send that, it'll render template with that dictionary as well. Mm-hmm. I'd love to see those kinds of things built more into Flask. I mean, I know this one's no longer relevant, but there's a couple of things like that that would be kind of cool, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very nice. Okay. So no more JSONify in our APIs, a little bit less code, write. It just makes it cleaner. I love it. All right. Number
1: two. Number two is do not store sensitive information in your user session. I see this a lot. It's so convenient. You have, you know, from Flask, import session, uh-huh. and then a session works like a dictionary. And it's so tempting to write any kind of information there that, you know, in the next request from the same client. You can recover. It's preserved right. uh, per client. Right. So right. like if you log in, you could put like the user ID in there. And so you, then the next request comes in, you could pull right. them back. So you simply yeah. put the user ID. So it's very important to remember that unless you configure Flask in a non default way, those sessions are not encrypted and they are sent in cookies to clients. So the client is storing all that information that you put in the session dictionary. So you should definitely never store information that you do not want to be public. Right. At least the user
0: could go in there and see it, or they could go in and they could mess with it,
1: right? They could tamper with the cookies and and whatnot, right? You definitely don't want that. So that's actually a good point. They could not, clients cannot modify it. The cookie is a secure cookie. It has the content. It's it's not clear text, but it's also not encrypted. It's in Base64 encoding, which is very simple (laughs) to...
0: It's like visually encrypted, but that's all. It's visually
1: encrypted, right. So it's Base64 encoded, but there's also a crypto signature in
0: the cookie. I see. Okay. So it's tamper-proof. Correct. If if you make any changes
1: in the client and then try to send that cookie again to the server, Flask will say, no, this is not the signature is incorrect yeah. and it'll throw it's, it away. Yeah. So, so that, that's not a problem. So, so it's safe against tampering, but it's really not safe against seeing what the information is. So right. never store cookies or, I'm sorry, secrets, passwords, you know, nothing of that sort. Yeah. So I've never used the session
0: feature of Flask. I've always just said, I want to store a cookie. And mm-hmm. it just has like one piece of identifying information to like carry on that session. And then I'll go back to the database to get the rest, everything else, right? Okay. Should I not be using this? Like, should I be using Session? Should I look more into it?
1: Session is actually very convenient. And Flask has a a plugin architecture. You can install different types of Sessions. The default is the the cookie or secure cookie-based Session that that I just described. But there's an extension called Flask Session, which provides Sessions that are stored server-side. So this, uh, this extension provides a number of storage mechanisms. You can store them in files pretty much in the style of PHP. If you've seen how those are stored, you can store them in, in a database, right? Through SQL Alchemy, for example. Probably Redis. Yeah. There's a Redis backend as well. So Flask session will be, you will have to do that if, if you want to store sensitive information in your session and then you will be safe, right? Because the only thing that will go On the session cookie in that setup will be the session ID, but all the information will be safely stored in the server.
0: Okay. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty pretty good thing. And the server side bit is, is nice, right? So you can store those things, but not actually send them. And even if it's not because it's sensitive, maybe it's not reasonably serializable or... It's not, uh, maybe it's just a lot of data, right? You don't want to send, like cookies are limited in how big they can be. And you don't want to exchange like huge cookies anyway.
1: They need to be, they are encoded to JSON before the base 64 encoding is applied. So Mm -hmm. whatever you store in the session needs to be JSON compatible. So a string, a number, a list of, or a dictionary. So yes, definitely there are some limitations. All right. What's number three? Kind of related.
0: Uh, Oh, before we move off this one, though, I want to do say one thing really quick. Maybe a 2.5, 2.7, something like that. You're talking about exchanging these cookies. And I was kind of thinking, well, okay, so the user really needs to be careful about, like, it'll be on their file system somewhere as a stored cookie. They can go to their dev tools and look at their cookies and whatnot. But it's kind of safe to the world. That's making a really big assumption that that connection is encrypted. Right.
1: (laughs) Yes, and actually these 10, maybe we should have an 11th tip, which is always use HTTPS. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah that was going to gonna be
0: my 2.5 yes. is like, let's yes. encrypt,
1: right? But yeah, you always have to have encrypted servers when you deploy for production. Even if you think that you have nothing that's sensitive, in this day and age, there's really no reason to risk it. Because you, you can get a free SSL certificate from Let's Encrypt. It's incredibly easy to set it up for Let's Encrypt. It's very easy to set it up.
0: Yeah, I had resisted it because I was like, I don't really want to learn. how. I already have this other SSL certificate I bought. It's like good for three years, but I don't want. And then I finally just said, all right, I'm going to find out, like, I'll just get Let's Encrypt working uh, just so I don't have to think about renewing this other one. And it was like 10 minutes later, I'm like, oh, that
1: was really easy. And that was the learning.
0: You know, the second time, it's even quicker. Yes.
1: And the certificates last, you know, they're short-lived. They last for three months, but you set set it up so that they automatically renew. And it's something that you never need to think about. They basically, they just work. Yeah. So yes, absolutely. You always have to have SSL encryption on your sites deployed to production. Yeah. Two more aspects to that. Obviously,
0: we think of privacy when we think encryption, but SEO... Google's taking into account whether a page is secure or not Mm -hmm. as well these days. And they're also taking into account performance. One of the really nice ways to get performance these days is to just do HTTP 2, right? Yes. And I'm pretty sure that only runs over SSL. I'm not so sure about that. Maybe. You know? Okay. I can't remember. I feel like I tried to set it up before...
1: I don't know, I think I'll mess around while we're talking and figure it out. We should definitely figure it out. And uh, in general, I've found that you can add all the, the HTTP2 solutions you know, outside of your web application. I don't find that I need to worry too much about that within Flask, for example. You put a reverse proxy in front that will take care of that. And that's actually the same idea that I'll apply to the encryption. In general, I prefer to leave that to tools that you know, that do that well, do it in native language, not in Python. It's way faster and more efficient. So all those things are good to have, but luckily they haven't changed, at least for me, how I write my web applications in Python and Flask. Yeah,
0: same. Yeah, I'm doing HTTP2 for my stuff. And it's like, most of that is around serving the CSS and the images and the JavaScript through Nginx. And like that's right. even before you talk Python, right? Exactly. Okay, so let me read something really quick and you, you interpret it for me. This mm-hmm. is from SSL.com. It says, browsers distinguish between clear text HTTP2 and HTTP2 over encrypted TLS as two different protocols. As of this writing, none of the major browsers support H2C, which is a clear text version, which means TLS encryption is mandatory. So the protocol specifies a non-encrypted version, but apparently the browsers... None of the browsers do it, right. At least as of November 2018, right? So maybe they have, but I'm surprised if they'd be... I don't see why they would. Right, exactly. So I think theoretically, you don't need SSL, but in practice, you need SSL. So one more reason, I guess, there. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right. More secrets, number
1: three. Okay, another secret-related one. You should use a .env or .env file to store your secrets. I'm sure if I go search uh, GitHub for the standard names that people assign to AWS Secrets or <laughs> even Twilio passwords, yeah. you know, all yeah, those yeah. things. All these things. I'm, I'm yeah. sure I, I can collect a bunch of them, right, that people put in source code and then they forget. yeah.
0: And that's fine until it's not. It's fine because you're like, oh, we're never going to open source this. And then somebody does and they don't realize it. And then yeah, bad stuff happens. S3 buckets are exposed and so on.
1: Right. So you should get used to never write a password or a secret or an API key directly in the code, even if you're doing it for a quick test, mm-hmm. because it happened to me many times. I think that I'm going to do a quick test, but then that evolves and eventually... I said, oh, this, this is a cool thing to show in a, in a gist. And then off it goes to GitHub. So never do it, and then you'll be safe. What you need to do instead is to replace, in the place where you are going to write the password or secret, just read an environment variable. And then get used to always have the secrets that you use in your applications in environment variables. Right.
0: That's helpful for things like uh, Docker as well. It helps you like create these more isolated, reproducible yes. elements. So that totally makes sense. And I've heard put them in environment variables, but what's the story with the .env file? How's that
1: relate? The problem is that people find it annoying to have to set environment variables because when, when you set an environment variable, the life of that environment variable is the session, right? If you, if you close your terminal window, let's say we're talking about development, right? So right. You know, at the end of the day, you turn off your machine. The next day, all those environment variables are gone, right? So. Yeah. My recommendation, and something that works really well with Flask, is that you put all your environment variables in the .env file, and then Flask, in recent releases, if the package python.env is installed, will just import all those variables when you run the application. And it basically sets them as if into the environment. Like, if you ask for them
0: from the environment dictionary... Will be there
1: it will be there in the same way as if you had set them by hand on your terminal before running flask run okay what's the name of this package python dash dot env D o t e m. yeah yeah there you go uh-huh. cool i'll put it in the show notes so even if you don't use flask this package makes it so simple to import a env file you just need to call a function load.env. that's it And then after you call that, all the variables that you stored in the .env file will be in your environment.
0: So I totally agree with this, but I always wonder what people use to persist and version and keep
1: those types of things.
0: Where do you store the stuff? So if you got a new computer or you got a new team member, how do you get them this information? I'm going to
1: tell you what I do. Some people may like it, some I'm guessing won't. But what I do is I create a .env template. I usually call it .env-template or, or something very clearly that you can see that it is an example of how your .env file should be structured. And in that template file, I write the variables, the equal sign, and then I leave it empty. So when you're installing your application in a new machine, you copy the .env-template to .env, and then you fill out your secrets. And yes, it is annoying, but it's only the first time when you're installing a new right. application. That's the only time you have to do it. And then it works. Second to that, you have to put the .env file in your gitignore file because you, of course, don't want to commit that on purpose or by mistake to source control. Right, that kind of defeats the purpose, right? Of course. <laughs> I think that
0: might be a default in GitHub if you pick the Python ignore template. Can't remember but i think
1: so no actually I, I wouldn't say that that was my complaint i don't believe it is oh it's just V, not dot env right i don't think they have dot env even though you know it's actually fairly standard many technologies and many languages and frameworks use it but i don't yeah. believe it is i'd like to see it there by default yeah well you
0: know that these uh git ignore templates are like projects on GitHub, right? So like github.com slash github slash gitignore is the project where those are kept. We could do a PR, see what they think. We should do a PR, definitely. We should do a PR, yeah. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale that you need to take your project to the next level. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage, and the next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance that you expect at a price that you don't. Get started on Linode today with a $20 credit, and you get access to native SSD storage, a 40-gigabit network, industry-leading processors, their revamped cloud manager at cloud.linode.com, root access to your server, along with their newest API, and a Python CLI. Just visit TalkPython.fm slash Linode when creating a new Linode account, and you'll automatically get $20 credit for your next project. Oh, and one last thing. They're hiring. Go to Linode.com slash careers to find out more. Let them know that we sent you. Good advice. Another thing that I've seen, this is not the same. It's the same vein, but it's not the same thing is, and this honestly sounds better, but also pretty good is Usually, we're using virtual environments for web apps and any meaningful app, right? So, the virtual environment you create has an activate script. Mm-hmm. You can set environment variables there. So, anytime you activate the virtual environment, it's always got its environment variables set. It's kind of the same. You create a new one, you got to
1: reset them, but similar. Yes. It's a little bit more difficult to remember to do it when you do a new installation. Yeah. yeah. But, but, yes, definitely a good README pointing you to do it should help and you achieve the same result.
0: I think the one difference is like the .env template explicitly kind of reminds you that there's some kind of thing I've got to do, whereas the virtual environment is like magic. Like it's good when it's set and it's working, Mm -hmm. but there's no indicator that this is a step you need to do.
1: Yes, that is a good point because when you call the the load.env function from from this python.env package, if there's no .env file in the file system, it'll print a warning. So you will see a warning in the the console. Nice. That's good. Perfect. All right. What's number four? So this is not specific to Flask, but for many years, people who use Windows, they're sort of treated like second-class citizens, right? Because most tutorials I've written for bash and you know yeah, unix yeah. Dot, based dot uh, space set.
0: vmv bin activate like wait a minute that doesn't work right. that the doesn't dot work. doesn't work the bin doesn't work what is all this? right yeah. and
1: then the, the forward slashes versus the backward slashes that you use on windows so in recent years there's also chromebooks which are another group of people the users of chromebooks who sort of felt at, at a disadvantage because you have a perfectly fine machine where you should be able to write develop code write python but For many years, it was not possible or it required hacks on the device itself. So these days, both Windows and Chromebooks both have Linux emulation solutions. They're not the same, but the end result is that you get a Linux prompt where you get Bash or C-shell or your favorite shell that you like. And then basically, you can run Ubuntu Linux in your Windows or Chromebook machine. Yeah. Nice. So I don't use Windows so much now, but I have a Chromebook. I can do pretty much anything I do on my Mac laptop on the officially supported Linux emulation on the Chromebook. So definitely take a look at the WSL, the Windows subsystem for Linux if you're on Windows, or the Linux files support if you're on Chrome OS. Because on both you can you can run the Ubuntu or other distributions. That's the default, but you, you can use a different one if you like, and you can run Python, you know, recent, recent versions of Python, Flask, and all of that works exactly like it would on a Unix or POSIX type OS. So you will be able to follow tutorials using the standard instructions that you see for Unix. Yeah, that's
0: cool. And the Windows subsystem for Linux 2.0 was just released not long ago, which is a big improvement, I understand.
1: It's actually an improvement in performance and it's actually more directly, it's less of a VM or virtual machine solution. You're right, it's kind of more linked
0: between the different yes. two to environments and apps and whatnot. Yeah, like you can open Explorer from your Linux and to get to your file system, stuff like that. But I think actually the Chromebook story is bigger because one of the important places people might want to use both Chromebooks or rephrase that they have a Chromebook as their only option and they want to learn Python or programming is in the educational space. Oh, yes. So many kids have Chromebooks. My daughter has a Chromebook from her school. And if they wanted to do Python, they could
1: maybe do some online thing, maybe. Or the answer was no, you don't do Python, right? It's actually hard to even an SSH connection to a remote server. You can, but it's tricky. It's not immediately obvious how to do it. But now you can run your... Own local Ubuntu distribution in the Chromebook. Nice, cool. That's a big deal. And it's all official. It doesn't require any hacks. It's all sanctioned by Google and developed by Google as well.
0: Cool. And shout out to the folks over at Canonical for releasing Ubuntu 20.04 LCS, the first LCS release. Yeah, in two years. So it was super awesome. And it comes with Python 3.8 as the default, and Python 2 is not even installed. So the Python story is better there, and obviously just the new Ubuntu is nice. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right, number five.
1: Uh, number five. Uh, so this is a thorny one. A lot of people to this day don't understand the contexts in Flask. Most people don't see this, but they only learn about it when they get an error. <laughs> and there's actually two different errors. And they're so similar that people think there's only one. And the two errors are... You're working outside of the application context. That's number one. And then the second one is you're working outside of the request context. And
0: I suspect this is where people are going just statically saying flask.request.property,
1: but that's not set because they're, they're outside the context, yeah? This comes all from the philosophy of Flask, which is to make all these variables, let's call them variables, that are global in nature, to be magically available. So you import, for example, current app or your import request, and then you just use it as if it was a global variable. It's actually, there's a little bit of magic underneath these imports, but you use them as global variables. And if you use them in the wrong place, then you get the error. Right, so once the context is created, these are what? Thread local storage, basically? Yes. The implementation is based on thread local storage. Okay. So they basically belong to a thread. Right. And that's the request coming in through like MicroWSGI or something like that, sets that, and then the rest of your app just has it. Correct. So okay. the interesting thing is that people don't realize that these are very different. If you get the, you're working outside of the application context error, that means that some piece of code wants to know what the application is. And all you need to do is set the application context yourself. If you look in the in the Flask official documentation, it shows how to do it. It's a single line. There's even a context manager to do this. So you set the context and then your code will work and you solve the problem. That's it. Yeah. The issue is when you get the other one and people confuse the two, but if you get you're working outside of the request context, that typically means that you have a bug in your application. You're trying to get information about a request. And there's no request, which means that you're running this code. Right. Maybe you kicked off a thread or something weird thing like that. Yeah. You're doing it in a place where there's no information about the client. So you you know nothing about a client or a request. I see. That indicates that you have a bug. And people find crazy ways to fix that, (laughs) basically to avoid (laughs) the error. And one that I, I see a lot is that Flask has this way to create a test request for unit tests. Right, right. If you create a test request, then you can invoke request dot something and it will work, but the information that you get is it's all fake. So yeah. I mean, the, the fact remains, you're, you're probably doing something in a place where you shouldn't be doing it. So application context, if you get the error, you set the context and you're good to go, it's perfectly fine request context, you need to look at your code. You probably have a bug. <laughs> You're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. Cool. All right. What's number six? Uh, number six is still related to this topic. I've seen many, many applications that have, for example, they have celery workers or, or any other type of auxiliary processes, maybe cron jobs, you know, all those things. So let's say you You have a web application written with Flask, and you're using Flask SQL Alchemy for your database. So when you go write the Celery side or the cron job, what do you do? You create all the models using Flask SQL Alchemy, and that extension has a very nice way of managing your connection. You don't have to worry about it, actually. Right. Create the engine, create the connection, create the table, all that. Yeah, right. All of that is done. You don't do any of that, right? When... People start coding their salary workers or cron jobs, they say, Well, okay, I'm gonna have to do all of this myself. They create their SQL Alchemy engine and and they have to figure out crazy ways to get the models which are written to inherit from db.model, which is a Flask SQL Alchemy class, you know, to inherit from the base. declarative base from SQL Alchemy and and they invent a lot of crazy ways to make that work and the fact is that you don't have to you can create a Flask instance and instantiate Flask SQL Alchemy and then not start a server and You can use the database just fine. Right. If you just don't call flask.run, you're kind of, everything's set up anyway, huh? Don't run the server, but create a flask instance in the Celery worker, in the cron job, it doesn't matter. Just create, call the the create app function to make it an application, configure it exactly like you configure it for for the server, but then don't start the server. And then that gives you access to using all the extensions. You, you can use the database through Flask SQL Alchemy just fine. There's absolutely no problem. Another big one is sending emails. So if, if you use the Flask mail extension, it's exactly the same thing. You can send right. an email from a Celery worker. You don't have to look for a different library. You can just create a Flask application instance, configure it, and then Flask mail will work just fine. Yeah, and well,
0: and sending an email is exactly why you would do this on another thread or in a background. Right. Because if you're sending one email, fine. It's probably okay. It's not ideal, but it's fine. But I ran into this thing where I had thousands of people sign up to get notified when I posted a new office hour because I have free office hours for my people to take my courses. They can drop in on Zoom and chat and whatnot. (laughs) When, When that started to grow, I remember hitting it and it like literally timed out the request trying to send the emails. And then it was halfway through sending the emails or some percent through but I didn't know how far, so I didn't know how oh, to go back and send yes. the rest of the emails. I'm like, well, the other rest of the people are just not getting sent because I'm going to email the first half again, right? It's just like, it's not a thing
1: you do as part of a request. It's really sad that similar stories happen to me. And <laughs> yes, that that's actually a good reason to send the emails to a background job. And yeah. then it can take yeah. as long as it needs. But yes, you you would need to create the Flask application instance. You will need to set the application context because in a particular case of both uh, Flask SQL Alchemy and Flask Mail, they need an application context because they need to get the configuration. That's all they need. That's actually, they they don't really care about Flask itself, but they have the configuration variables in app.config. So you need to set the application context. So they need the first part. They need the app part. Yeah. Right. They just need to know where the app is. So only so that they can get to the configuration and then they can know what the database is or what the email server is. So definitely do it that way. And then you can have a consistent way of working with database or emails between the server and your auxiliary processes. Yeah.
0: That's great. Great advice. I, now when I'm doing something like email, even if I'm just sending one, it's on a background job. It's not part of the request.
1: It should always be. And people don't realize this, but sending an email is actually very slow. It takes yeah. a few seconds,
0: if you're lucky. Right. It, well, and it also depends on things you don't control, right? Like, you probably there, control your database somewhat. But if this is like some external mail server that's then talking to some other thing. Yeah, it's... Yes, you know, and,
1: and, you know, many, many servers uh, introduce artificial delays for security purposes. There's a lot of tricks that many servers implement. The, the end story is that sending an email takes two, three seconds, at least, yeah, just one. At least, yeah. So it should never be done in the server, <laughs> you know, in the foreground of a server route. Right, absolutely.
0: All right, uh, number seven. This one I kind of uh, nudged you to cover. Yeah, this is uh, this is a good- Because I'm a fan of it. But yeah,
1: tell us about this one. Uh, I'll, I'll jump in as well a bit if you want. You surely know this one better than me because I found out a few days ago when you pointed this out, but uh, secure.py is a project that, provides a lot of security settings around how you configure your cookies, your HTTP headers in your requests, actually in your responses, not only for Flask, but for a lot of frameworks, a really long list of frameworks.
0: Yeah, this is one of the things I really like about this project is because if I go learn how to do secure headers in Pyramid, then I go write a Flask, my Flask API, I've got to like rethink, okay, well, what does this default to? And then how do I do it? And what's cool about this is it's like literally one line, one piece of middleware or callback, and you've got all these things added, and it works for Flask, Pyramid, Django, like Starlet. and
1: the newer frameworks, right? The, the
0: async IO frameworks, right? right? All the the core, which we'll talk about, responder, like it has support for all. So you just do the one thing for that framework, the one line, and then you're good. All right, so tell us about, like, why do we care about these things? What is this?
1: There is a number of things that the default configuration for, for Flask and for all the other frameworks, they don't do. And the reason why many of these things are not set by default is that they don't make sense during development. I and mean, that that's one of the mm-hmm. reasons.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like strict transport security, for example. Like, right, you don't want to example. run SSL to just run
1: localhost, right? You want exactly. to be able to just work that with would That thing. be... Yeah. Uh, a, yeah, an unnecessary complication, or setting the uh, the secure bit on your session cookie. That's another yeah. thing that you would not do when you're working, you know, on your <laughs> application, but that you definitely need to do when you deploy the application for production. Right.
0: If I have that right, that
1: means I'm only allowing
0: the server and the browser to exchange that cookie if it's an SSL request. So maybe I type the domain name, but I don't put HTTPS at the beginning. And it does a
1: HTTP and then an HTTP redirect to the S. It's a very clever hack that some people exploit. The browser will send your cookies unless told otherwise, regardless of you going to the site via HTTP or HTTPS. The, The browser doesn't care unless you tell the browser that the cookie should only be sent on the secure connection. So the default is not set. So cookies in Flask are not secure, what people do is they call your site with HTTP and that basically forces the cookie to go from the client to the server on an, an encrypted connection and, right, and right. it can be intercepted. Right. And then probably your server will say, well, I, I don't have HTTP. It'll do a redirect to the same URL. Right, but it's HTTPS. too late.
0: It's too late. The cookie has been exchanged. Yeah.
1: Time that's too late. Exactly. The yeah. cookie has been, you know, traveling the network you know, unencrypted. So yeah. yeah, definitely this is a good way if if you don't want to think about security and, you know, ideally most people they're not security experts. So this is a good way to make sure that you have the, the baseline of your, of your security protections all in place.
0: Yeah, so some other things that it does is it re- prevents your site from being embedded in an iframe in another site mm-hmm. automatically, right? So people can't spoof yours, like wrap it with something else yeah, it turns on strict transport security, things like
1: that. Yeah. The list of things that they do is actually way more than what I would have done myself or what I do yeah. myself by hand.
0: It's definitely worth checking. It comes from the OWASP, like, which is a web security group. It comes yes. from their recommendations and it just automatically adds it. And I imagine if there's a new recommendation, it'll just pick it up when you pip install upgrade this and you'll get the newer mm-hmm. ones, which I think is nice, like kind of like versions your security. So yeah, it's it's really easy to use and I I dig it. So
1: even if if you're a, a do-it-yourselfer, it's a good place to learn all these things. As I mentioned, there are many in that list of things that they do that you know they were not on my radar at all. Yeah. So yeah,
0: like the iframe one was
1: not on my radar. Either. Yeah. Me neither. Right. Yeah. So very good project. Uh, yeah. Cool. All right. Number eight. Uh, number eight. So HTTPi is a very nice project. So we're used to see when we look at tutorials. Uh, people use curl to show how to send a request on the command line. And curl has a somewhat unfriendly structure, especially when you need to send API requests that have JSON, a JSON payload. So what I've been using for the last few years is this Python project called HTTPI, HTTP IE. And that is a much friendlier command line HTTP client for mostly for API use. Yeah,
0: I love this package so much. It's one of the first things I install in a new server.
1: It is so much better than curl. I almost never install packages in the global Python. I always create virtual environments, but HTTPY is in my global Python because I I always use it even if I'm not working in a Python project. So I always want to have a copy of it readily available on my command line. So, for example, if you, if you need to send headers, there's a syntax where you just use header name, colon, and then the value after you put the URL. If you want to send JSON variables instead of the colon, you use an equal sign. And there's a number of shortcuts that you can use to create an HTTP request very easily, and, yeah. and not only get requests, you post and put, and you know all the the harder ones as well. Yeah. So once you install this, probably in
0: your semi-global namespace with a dash dash user type of thing, then you have two commands on your terminal. You have HTTP and HTTPS, and then you just give it a, a URL
1: or or whatever. It's really nice. Right. It's actually the method and then the URL. So so you can say post and then the URL. And then you add your headers and your variables and off you go. Yeah. And one of the things
0: I really love about this is the response is color coded, like like a mm-hmm. code editor, right? So yes. you get like syntax highlighting on your responses and on your headers, cookie values and everything. It's great. It's very nice. And I rarely use curl anymore now. Yeah, same. Love it. All right. Number nine, I talked about these new frameworks coming along because Flask and Django and Pyramid and so on don't inherently
1: support async iO and a lot of them are growing to do that but but a lot of people want to use async iO with flask I think you you had Philip Jones on your podcast at some point to talk about this yeah he, he went and created from scratch a clone of all the flask classes and methods within those classes so basically he created a full clone of all the Flask APIs. And that project is called Quart. Nice. The difference with Flask is that it runs on async IO. So you, c- you can create async view functions. I believe at this point, he has even added some support for for some Flask extensions. It's almost entirely compatible with the extension
0: system as well, he said. So I don't think it's 100%, but most of the common extensions will still work with Quart, which is pretty cool.
1: The common extensions that don't do any, any blocking work, then, uh, yeah, they will work on Quart. So it's definitely something interesting. He's actually involved in this effort that's starting to add async IO support to Flask as well. Yeah. There's a pull request, the first pull request. I don't recall if it was merged already, but it's, it's close to, to be merged to add a, yeah. a first shy implementation of async IO support within Flask. He's involved with that effort. Otherwise, if if you want to have full support for async I/O today, using a very familiar Flask and all the the Flask features, then Quartz is actually a very good very good choice. Yeah,
0: it's a super good one. All, all you have to do is replace the word Flask with Quart. If it's a little case Flask, it's lowercase Quart. If it's uppercase mm-hmm. Flask, it's uppercase Quartz. And then you have the API. You do have to get the Zen of async I/O and async and await and all that, which is a different way of thinking, but it's. Super awesome once you get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very, very nice stuff. I guess that'll just kick you down the path to go, okay, well, now I need to figure out how to do async SQL Alchemy or async Redis or async File right. IO. It's right. I mean, it's like a, it's a la- layers of exploration to take full advantage of it, but it's very, it's a very cool framework. And I'd love to see it part of Flask just proper, not have these two
1: projects. It's going to take some time to redesign Flask to to be fully async.io compatible. But yeah, the first steps are there and Quart for now is a great option. If you really... This is interesting. It used to be that you would think from the side of standard Python and async.io will have very few libraries that you could work with. Now there are starting to be libraries that you want to use that only support async.io. You have a Flask application and you want to use some async.io library so going to Quartz will be a good option in yeah. that case. And you talked about building kind of
0: microservice C type of things as well. And in that world, you're waiting a lot on external systems. And when you're mostly waiting on other things, async I/O is like, it's like pure it, magic, it, right?
1: It really shines. Yes, that is yeah, actually absolutely. the use case. The only one, if you ask me, yeah. that really makes sense because you, you can scale your little service, tens of thousands of clients, and since most of them are all, you know, most of the time, waiting, it can do that like like nothing else. It's really, really nice. Yeah,
0: super cool. All right, you have uh, the last one, semi last one, number ten. Here
1: is yes. something in the same vein, but not the same. Tell us about N- it. So, number ten is so. So, let's say you you like asynchronous programming. You're not ready to go you know, full blown async IO, and you you have a Flask application. You want to take advantage of asynchronous programming what can you do what a lot of people seem to have forgotten is that there were many async frameworks that existed from before before asyncio and there are a couple of them that are continue to be supported and they still run uh, really well and flask supports them always supported them and the two that in particular i have experience with are gevent and eventlet and these frameworks are they have a different philosophy compared to async IO. Async IO wants to make it very explicit that you are writing asynchronous code. You even have new uh, language keywords async await. So both Gevent and Eventlet look at this from a different side. They try to make normal code that you're familiar with become asynchronous under the hood. So you write the code in the way you always done it and they implement or re-implement all the blocking functions in the Python standard library using asynchronous functions that use the same interfaces. So these frameworks are intentionally supported by Flask. So Flask recognizes if it's running under these frameworks. Both are based on a package called Greenlet, which is the core technology that makes this possible. It's a native code extension or plugin for Python that you install with PIP. And if you're running under Greenlets, then Flask makes everything work the same as if you were working with normal threads. I personally have been using both Gevent and Eventlet for many years on Flask applications with very little problem. Cool. So, all right. Well so that's one I didn't know about. So that's 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 very another nice. option. I bet it'll work great with pyramid as well. Yeah, probably. You you get a new implementation of sockets and threads and you know all those blocking functions in the standard library that that are asynchronous. And you you call them in the same way. Yeah, so it's way below the layer. Yeah, the, like the framework wouldn't even know, right? Right. So uh, you, you can use Flask, you can use uh, requests, you know, all those libraries that do threading, networking, all those automatically become asynchronous by installing this library and using it as a server. Very cool. All
0: right, well, that's an awesome one. I'm going to look into that.
1: Now, I, that's our 10.
0: I wanted mm-hmm. to throw just really quick and let you just riff on this one because I feel like this one is so in the wheelhouse of Flask, and yet I don't nearly see it spoken about enough.
1: Blueprints. Blueprints. That is a good point. When you're building an API, you probably, if, if you're doing microservices, you probably use a, a full application for each service. When you're building something a little bigger than, than that, than a microservice... You would like to structure your application in a way that has, uh, that's modular. Right. You don't want like a 3000 line app.py file. (laughs) Right. Probably definitely don't want that. I don't want one. So Flask has this concept of blueprints, which a lot of people think there's something very complex or magical or sophisticated. And it's really a very simple idea, which is to partition the application in, in different modules or packages. And you create a blueprint, which is like a mini application that then you plug into the the Flask application. So you create all these application subsets, which can be a collection of routes, templates, and static files. You build these bundles. You call them blueprints. Each one can be a module or a package. And then those by themselves, they do nothing. But at some point when you create your Flask application... You can plug them into the application and then at that point they become active. And then you, you can get all all of those working together to to form the application. That's pretty cool. I really like it. So if you had like a, a site and you had,
0: let's say, seven or eight view methods that had to do with account management, right? You would have maybe have an account module and there you'd have your view methods. And instead of trying to somehow reverse past the, the app itself that you've created, but then also bring that back into the the app.py, it's Mm -hmm. sort of circular. You create the blueprint and then you put, say, at blueprint.route instead of app.route. And otherwise it's basically the
1: same. And then, then you've got a much nicer participant. It's like an application. Yeah. Definitely most applications that I build, they have at least two blueprints, one that I call main, which is the core logic, and then one that's called auth that performs all the authentication, right? And one nice thing about working in this modular way is that if you wrote an auth blueprint, very likely, you can take it from one project to the next. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. You can make it into a Python package that you can install with pip. Some extensions, some Flask extensions, are actually blueprints. I hadn't really thought about it that way. That's
0: cool because mm-hmm. then you just go from your package dot blueprint. You just go app dot register routes app the package dot blueprint, and boom, it's good. That's a really interesting way to to
1: modularize it. Yeah, the the one that I've used uh, just this is a uh, Flask Bootstrap, which gives you access to some nice helpers to deal with the markup and the JavaScript required to do and, and the forms for the bootstrap framework for the client side. And that's a blueprint. So when you register the extension, the extension, the only thing it does is it registers the blueprint with your application. So it plugs yeah. into your application and then off it goes. So it's actually a, a nice way to develop extensions for Flask or, or your own reusable packages that you want to use yeah. in your, your own solutions. So many uses for Blueprints. Very cool.
0: All right, Miguel, we're pretty much out of time, I think, at this point. So those were really, really interesting. And I think people will get a lot about, out of those ideas. I'm sure most people, at least one of those is new to them, right? Hopefully
1: one or two. Yes. Yeah. for cool. I, very, I know there cool. was one new to me. <laughs> <That's> secure the Bible <laughs> nice. was new no. to me, so I, I yeah, got I something got out of it, too.
0: Me as well. <laughs> awesome. All right. So uh, really quick, last two questions. If you're going to write some Python code, what editor are you using these days?
1: I use three editors. So I use PyCharm sometimes, I use Visual Studio Code sometimes, and I use Vim sometimes. You have to pick one. (laughs) You have to pick one. And this is also, I'm sure it's going to disappoint a lot of people. I think my favorite is Vim. Okay. And the reason is that I work a lot on remote servers. And it's really inconvenient to set up one of the larger ides to work remotely it's sort of an annoyance i just want to ssh into a box and then drop my config file for vim and then it works exactly like it works locally and vim has a it's our uh, learning curve but once you learn it it's actually very efficient and it has python plugins that give you some of the things that you get on the on the more elaborate ides so very cool I have to think that Vim is my favorite. <laughs> also, a lot of people... Somebody me, made you choose, yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people don't like that when when I do my tutorials, my tutorial videos, I use Vim. The reason why I use Vim there is not because I like it. It's because I know that's the least likely editor that people following my tutorials will be using. And I want to force them to think about how to translate what I do instead of just copying every keystroke that I make. So I use the editor that I think it's the least likely to be known by my students. Well, interesting uh, philosophy. So since you brought up Vim, I have a Vim joke for you. Okay.
0: (laughs) How do you generate a random string? You uh, get a first-year computer science student to open Vim, and then you ask them to quit. To quit. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah. Uh, It's funny. because (laughs) So I did two videos that are actually very popular showing how to set up a Flask application with PyCharm. And then I did another one with a VS Code. I'm going to do the same with Vim. which yeah, is, you should. It, It's going to be very fun. It's probably going to generate a lot of hate as well, but I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. Why are the comments disabled on YouTube for this one? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think people will be surprised because, uh, of course, the very first thing that I'm going to show is how to quit, of course. But, uh, You know, you don't have to learn a lot of things to to be productive with them. Yeah, very cool. All right. And the notable PyPI package? This isn't a PYPI. Tmux is a package that I use a lot with Python. And in general, when I work on the command line. Okay. What does it do? It's a terminal multiplexer. A lot of people ask me when they see my videos. This is another one that I get very often. They see me, you know, happily punching keystrokes and suddenly the screen divides into two, and I get two terminals instead of one. People don't understand what happened. And this is Tmux. Tmux is a very nice package. There are actually packages on on PYPI that allow you to, to talk to Tmux and make it even more integrated into your Python workflows. But the package is, is a native uh, utility that you install with, uh, you know, it comes with Ubuntu. There are Ubuntu packages or on the Mac with Brew. On Windows and Chromebooks, you can use that it runs perfectly WSL. well on the yeah. Linux emulation systems and basically allows you to, uh, to create multiple terminals in the physical space of one. And one thing that is very nice, if you have it installed in a remote server, is that when you exit the server, those terminals remain. When you SSH back into the server the next day, all the terminals are there exactly how you left them. I see. So whatever you're up to is still around. It saves all the terminals. Yes. Yeah. Very cool. So so that would be my nice package to mention. That's a great one.
0: All right, final call to action. People may have been working on Flask for a while. They want to apply some of these tips. What do you tell them?
1: Something that's very important to me, I had a a lot of great stories that were a result of me sharing, you know, when I started on my blog and, and then conferences, who knows when we're going to do conferences again. But So sharing is, I think, what helped me get to where I am having a job that I love, my recommendation would be that using these tips or all the tips that you get from other sources and when you come up with a solution, share it. You may think that it's something that everybody else will, you know, could easily come up with. They already know it. I don't need to talk about this. I don't need to talk about it. Uh, Well, you actually do. There's always going to be someone who's, you know, on the same path you are, but it's, you know, a few steps behind that will benefit and you will help them progress in the same way that you you are making progress so you should definitely start writing a blog or videos or tweets you know however in whichever way you are comfortable but start sharing and what's going to happen is that all that body of work that you're sharing over time is going to speak for yourself so you will not have to take so much effort in showing yourself to prospective employers or, for you know, contracting
0: uh, or contracting or whatever, uh, user yeah.
1: groups, conferences, when you apply to a conference, all of that thing that you produce a little bit at a time is going to speak for you and it's going to be your best advocate. That's yeah. what worked for me. So I think everyone should. Yeah, definitely. And I think
0: also it's a great way to learn, even if you don't totally know, because people will say, why are you doing that? Why don't you use this package? Or you could actually do this other extension or like, well, the reason I didn't do that, I didn't know, but now I know, right? Thanks for telling me, right? right? Next time I'll do mm-hmm. I'll do something different, right? So yeah, it's, it's great. All right. Really great to catch up with you. Thanks for coming on yeah. and sharing all these tips. I think people will find them very useful. Thank you so much for having me. Right. Bye. Bye-bye. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Our guest on this episode was Miguel Grinberg, and it's been brought to you by Sentry and Linode. Take some stress out of your life. Get notified immediately about errors in your web applications with Sentry. Just visit talkpython.fm Sentry and get started for free. Start your next Python project on Linode's state-of-the-art cloud service. Just visit talkpython.fm Linode, L-I-N-O-D-E. You'll automatically get a $20 credit when you create a new account. Want to level up your Python? If you're just getting started, try my Python Jumpstart by Building 10 Apps course. Or if you're looking for something more advanced, check out our new async course that digs into all the different types of async programming you can do in Python. And of course, if you're interested in more than one of these, be sure to check out our Everything Bundle. It's like a subscription that never expires. Be sure to subscribe to the show. Open your favorite podcatcher and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, the Google Play feed at slash play, and the direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm.